Welcome to the Motherhood Village podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Gonzalez Cumberbatch, and I know firsthand that it takes a village to raise a child, but most importantly, that it takes a village to uplift a mother. A mother's village is necessary and can take up many forms. Consider this podcast as part of your motherhood village. No matter the season of motherhood you're in, every conversation will give you more tools to add to your parenting toolbox and you'll feel supported, inspired, and uplifted. So let's get into an informative and empowering conversation. Hello and welcome to the Motherhood Village podcast. I am all with a very special guest. I have Caitlin of Joyfully Learning. Caitlin, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be here talking to you. Same. Um, Why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about you before we jump into the conversation? Sure. So I am the founding director of a private tutoring and educational consulting practice. I've basically been working with kids and families since I was a kid myself, uh, more than 20 years, and I've been in private practice for the last 12. Love it. Before we jump into the meat and potatoes, because I did some research and um, I reached out to you to have you on the podcast and there was for a specific reason, but um, let's do the icebreaker round first. What is your favorite book or one that you would like to recommend? Okay. So I love to read. I don't feel healthy if I'm not reading pretty much every day. I would say it's really hard to pick one favorite, but um, some of my top favorites are Patron Saint of Liars by Ann Patchett, um, which is a sort of non-traditional motherhood story, which I really love. Um, I also love Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, although full warning to everybody, it's very dark. So, um, you know, tread, tread carefully if that's triggering for you. Okay. Awesome. And who and what has been a part of your motherhood journey um, or motherhood village in your personal life and your entrepreneurial journey? So I have a best friend who is just amazing. I mean, she was there for, she introduced me to my husband. She was there for the births of both of my children. Um, And she was, (laughs) so when I had my first son, I, um, I thought I was going to a regular OB appointment. I didn't realize I was having a baby. And then they said, you're staying and you're having a baby. And she traveled all over New York City that day. If I tell you, picking up my things, the things that I needed because I didn't have anything with me. Like I literally didn't know that was happening. Um, so she's been amazing and supportive from day one. And now that I have more years in private practice, I am incredibly supported by and supportive of a group of Brooklyn-based mom entrepreneurs. Um, We meet regularly. We um, help, you know, our businesses are sort of in different areas, but connected. Similar parents and families would want to come to us and work with us. So we've worked with each other's kids now as our kids get older. And it's um, incredibly powerful to be supported by a group of women who get it right? They're being, they're momming, as I like to say, and they're running kid-based businesses. And it's just, um, it, I don't see it being as fulfilling and as successful for me if I didn't have that community. For sure. I always say, and I mean, I do presentations on it. It take you have to find your village. Um, also for your mental health, uh, entrepreneurship and motherhood go hand in hand with the isolation, the overwhelm. We want to do it all. We don't ask for help, the whole thing. So there's a lot yeah. of mental health um, aspects with it. So I love that you say that you kind of have your friends and then you also have your mom group kind of like to support you in both because that's super important. Yeah. Okay, let's jump into, tell me the journey into creating joyfully learning what are the services that you provide um yeah let's start with that and then I have some follow-up questions with it 
Sure. So our work is in two related areas. One side of our business is the private tutoring, and then the other side is the educational consulting. So private tutoring is what people sort of traditionally expect when they picture tutoring, which can be support for a student who needs additional support in a certain area. But it's also many students who are with us for enrichment in an area that maybe they're interested in something that they don't get to explore deeply in the normal school year, or um, they love the school they're in for a variety of reasons, but it's not challenging enough in a certain area. So they'll bring in tutoring for that. Um, We have a lot of kids who come to us for executive functioning support, which is like what we might have thought of as like study and organization skills when we were growing up. So um, it's not tutoring for content in a particular area. It's not like, oh, I need help with algebra, right? It's more um, support in skills that will help them be successful across any subject during their academic career. So um, yeah, go ahead. No, because that's that's so fascinating of what made you have that approach. And I, I know um, you have a much deeper bio, which will be listed into the show notes of, <laughs> of your education background. But um, so I can see the substance there of education being really important to you. But what made you, I guess, transition instead of being a traditional, what you would think, as you said, tutoring, where you have like a specific um, academic or uh, subject that you want to focus on, where to your point, it's encompassing much more of that. What made you kind of take it from that approach? So imagine being a first time mom and hearing these words. We don't know how to help your child. Mm. (laughs) That was me as a first time mom. So I grew up thinking that I knew how to do education because I knew how to get stickers on my reading logs and A's on my report cards and my Mm -hmm. pencil lines never strayed outside my standardized test bubbles. And then I became a mom and I had this amazing child and the way that he learns, it doesn't fit into other people's standardized bubbles. So when I realized I wasn't going to be able to rely on so-called experts to hand me a plan for his education, I realized I was going to have to create it for him myself. And it wasn't easy. It was a ton of trial and error. And watching him play, watching him learn, watching what caused him to light up inside. And in doing that, I started talking to other mothers who wanted to figure out the same things for their kids. And then something amazing happened because it became so much bigger than being just about my son. And I realized this is a gift I can give to other moms. And other than raising my own kids, it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my entire life. I love that. And um, before creating it into a business, what did you do? Did you, were you a teacher in education? And sorry if I missed that. Were you an actual teacher? Yeah, so I have classroom teaching experience from really early on in my career, um, but I went into private practice about a dozen years ago. I realized that I can have much more impact one-on-one with a child or working with an individual family than I personally could in a classroom. I have tremendous respect for classroom teachers, but it's not where my biggest impact is going to be made. And do you think, um, is it because times have changed? Like I look back to like even growing up and how everything was so standard and we had like there was one school and you went through and now there's charter schools and there's micro schools and there's homeschooling and look you created this you know wonderful program that's not just tutoring but really helping students thrive in other educational aspects um what do you think was that shift and why has this come to be Meaning, why did I move away from a school-centered model to the yeah, type of work and, that I and do? Us seeing more of that, the micro schools, right? Um, that yeah. was a term I just heard. Instead of and what we envision homeschooling, like I, I spoke to someone who homeschooled, and I, I was like, yeah, I think we have this vision that like little house on the prairie, right? Like everyone's in a thing. There's no books, there's no TVs, and it's just reading, you know. And it's like, no, there's so much yeah. more, um, uh, so much more than just that. So yeah, why do you think things have changed? Not just just with you, but where we are now with education. So 
I think there are a couple pieces to that. For me, as I said, my mm-hmm. son's need caused that shift sure. for me. So I think that a lot of other moms are experiencing that because they're seeing their children's needs in a different light. We may have been raised, as you were mentioning, like we were conditioned by a certain system, right? That this is just how it's done, right? But the reality is that a lot of what's done in schools is not evidence-based. It's not founded in research. And when we say like, oh, but it's always been done this way, we tend to have a very short-term memory about education because an education always is maybe 100 or 150 years, right? Like before then we were at a one-room schoolhouse model or people had, you know, at-home tutors and governesses, right? So then COVID happens, right? And suddenly school is being piped into our living rooms, right? And we're seeing it. And we can see as moms, like that caused my child to light up. That teacher said something that really doesn't align with my family's values, right? These different things that we never saw before. They were behind closed doors. And although that period in time was incredibly stressful and, you know, nobody would wish that on themselves. One of the silver linings that came out of that was this increased awareness for what our children were experiencing in school and what did help them thrive or not, right? And so a lot of what I talk to parents about is, number one, telling moms to trust their instincts. You know your child best, right? And yet often we feel like we're, I used to describe it as like, I feel like I'm a little boat on a big ocean. And like the pediatrician says something and here's this big wave and my boat gets tossed over here, right? And the teacher says something and there's another big wave and I'm tossed over here, right? When in reality, if we trust our instincts, if I tell you, when I get on the phone with a mom for the first time and she's giving me the whole backstory of what's going on with her kid, the minute she says, I just have a feeling, Mm -hmm. I key in completely into what's coming next because 99% of the time, it's going to be the key for me into figuring out how to help her child. Oh, that's so powerful. And I think for any mom listening, um, I think we get a lot of that, like, oh, the intuition, the mom sense, it is so real. So real. Um, I was reading on your website um, that you really are into making learning joyful and fun, hence joyfully learning. Why is that so important? I know a lot of um, uh, your stuff is based on, like you said, said research-based and all the things. Why is it important to make it uh, joyful and fun for children? So kids learn best when they're having fun right? You know it. I know it. Our kids know it, right? And it it seems like a no-brainer. Like, why do we have to say that? And yet, in so many of our educational environments, it's not what's happening, right? So what we know when we look at the research on the way our brains develop and work, we know a few really key things that are what have led me to really being an advocate for kids deserving joy in their learning, right? Number one, if we're experiencing shame, our ability to learn shuts down. So any academic environment, any school that is engaging in practices that are publicly shaming your child, and I can talk more about what I mean by that, you're shutting down your child's ability to learn. So this is things like uh, classroom behavior charts where you put up on the wall like, oh, so-and-so is in the red zone, so-and-so is in the green zone, right? This is an example of public shaming in a classroom setting. This could be um, writing like naughty, quote-unquote, kids' names up on the blackboard, right, as a classroom management practice. This could be withholding recess punitively where publicly everybody sees that a certain child misses out on recess, right? Um, and and listen, no teacher goes into elementary education unless they want to help kids, right? They're not doing it for the glamour. They're not doing it for the money, But a lot of this comes from not having the professional development that they crave, they want it, but it's not necessarily available, resource issues, et cetera, in, you know, what I consider to be neurodiversity-affirming, strengths-based practices, right, which is the educator jargon for what I'm describing, the opposite, like not the public shaming, right? Um, So 
So I think that that's really important in terms of understanding how kids learn. So if you think of that public shaming as like the antithesis of joyful learning, right? You asked originally why was I so focused on joyful learning? Um, And then the other piece of it that I really think about is that um, kids are engaged with learning when it's something that can be connected to their interests, this idea of self-direction, right? There are a hundred ways, a thousand ways to teach any one thing, right? So any educator who tells you that teaching has to look just one way is telling you what's easiest for the teacher and not what is best for your child, right? So yes, I can teach, you know, trigonometry on a worksheet, but I can also teach trigonometry flying a kite, right? Like I can also teach it while looking at the history and engineering of skateboards. So one of the things I do is look at what is interesting to this child and how can I help them grow where they want to or need to grow from a foundation of their strengths and interests, right? So all of this connects this idea of we deserve and our kids deserve joy in their learning. And beyond deserving it, right? It sounds great as moms, we want our kids to be joyful. It works best, right? We have the research that shows us they're going to learn better if we take this approach. For sure. I love that. And what are the terms, if you can specify, for people that may have misconceptions behind it between gifted and neurodiverse? What does that mean to say, oh, my child is gifted. We're actually going to test our son. It was funny. I was talking to the psychologist and he's like, I told him, I was like, every every parent probably thinks their child is like, oh, he's exceptional. He's like, actually, you'd be surprised. Not so much. Um, But then we got into how the public school systems, like the numbers are really high because the public school system really doesn't have the funding to really help a lot of kids that could technically be gifted. So I thought that was very interesting. He's like, so that's why the, I guess the level, I think it's like a 130 or whatever that number is. But talk to me about what that means to be gifted and neurodiverse. Sure. So neurodiversity is a fact of our species. It describes the spectrum and way that uh, that people process information, right? So no two people process information the same way. And it's not a diagnosis. It's not really up for debate, right? It's just a scientific fact sure. of our species. And it's also um, hugely beneficial for our species. We need it to thrive. Just like you want biodiversity in an ecosystem, it benefits you to have neurodiversity in your population. So uh, one way to think about that is if we want something different out the other end, right? Do we want like a cure for cancer? or a solution to climate change, why would we think that forcing all of our kids to conform to thinking and learning one way was ever going to get us something different out the other end, right? So that's what neurodiversity really means. Now, we have forms of neurodiversity or what some people will call forms of neurodivergence um, that do get diagnoses. And these are ones you're probably really familiar with. So ADHD, uh, language-based learning differences like dyslexia, uh, autism spectrum. Uh, There's a whole slew of diagnoses that fall under the umbrella of neurodivergence, right? Or forms of neurodiversity. Um, Giftedness is, uh, in my opinion, at higher levels, so highly and profoundly gifted kids, and we can talk about that distinction if it's helpful, um, is itself a form of neurodiversity. And we have challenges in our culture in talking about giftedness, because if you ask 10 different people to define gifted for you, you're going to get 10 different answers. And so it's very difficult to have meaningful conversations with teachers, other providers, et cetera, if you're not sure that you're all talking about the same thing when you say it, right? Um, So, you know, at its essence, giftedness is um, an accelerated or advanced ability in one or more areas when compared to peers who are the same age and have been exposed to the same experiences and environment, 
right? Sure. Um, and there are certain characteristics that many gifted kids share, but much like any other form of identity, you know, we'll say if you've met one gifted child, you've met one gifted child, right? There's no, everybody's sure. not going to be the same. hundred percent. Thank you for that clarification. Now, step back a little bit. Um, what you were saying as far as learning completely makes sense, but we know we live in the real world of public education. We already know, like you said, teachers aren't paid enough. There's not enough resources for those families that maybe can't afford a private school, micro school, you know, and all the things, um, how can they advocate for their children and their learning ability? Let's say their child is struggling a bit. What are things that they can do? Maybe share some tips um, that may work that maybe they just don't have the funds um, that, that they can do. Sure. So I really encourage parents to look for a neurodiversity affirming environment, whether you have a child who is neurodivergent, whether you have a gifted child, frankly, these practices help all children. Um, and that's strengths-based. And so what I mean by that is um, we're looking for an environment that understands and supports that um, not everybody learns the same way and not everybody demonstrates their focus or their learning in the same way. So um, you would want to, for example, move away from a class that had like classroom expectations of everybody's holding their body still, everybody's hands are in their lap, everybody's mouths are quiet, everybody's eyes are on me, because that's an antiquated approach to demonstrating one's focus, right? Sure. And that is a very fast indicator that either that teacher or more likely at an administrative level, that school is not up to date on the research and best practices, which is concerning to me. Now, if you don't have a choice, right, there are many of us yeah. who don't have an option and this is the school we're assigned to and this is where we go, that's your moment for advocacy, right? That's your moment to be able to bring in newer research and have conversations around what might help all kids thrive. Because at the end of the day, I can go into a meeting with teachers and talk about my son, but a lot of what I'm recommending is going to benefit every child in that classroom. Um, and then I would say if we're specifically talking about gifted learners, um, one of the things I'm particularly looking for is differentiation. And what that means is that the whole class is not given the same work, mm -hmm. right? That that work is um, differentiated, right, is, is done differently for kids with different strengths and challenges, sure. right? And that doesn't mean, you know, sometimes, again, we grew up at a, at a different time, right? We think of like, okay, there were two groups, right? There was, was like the higher group and the lower group, right? right? Or we could call them apples and oranges, but the kids knew what, the, what it meant, right? Uh, I would really love to see, and there are many schools starting to do this, um, flexible groups where kids move among the groups throughout the year, depending on what the unit of study is, right? Because a child, and this is a common misconception about giftedness, is that gifted means high achieving, right? And that they're equally high achieving across subjects. When in fact, we know that gifted kids often have what's thought of as asynchronous development, where they might be really accelerated in one thing, but need additional support in another. Um, so that's sort of a long answer to your question about what am I looking for when I look at schools? <laughs> no, that's great. But that's great because I think it goes back to the data. So to your point, it's like, do the research, get with other parents and say, look, go to the principals, go and say, look, this is what we're showing that needs to be done. So find a way to incorporate it. Um, but it's really important for parents. We have to advocate for our children. But I, I love the point that you made um, because I see that with even my son, whether he tests or not, where there's some things, oh my gosh, like he can pick up on and then there's other things I can see that he struggles with so in my mind right. I'm like does that mean or whatever but to your point it makes perfect it, it makes sense they're not going to be high achieving at everything it's just there's certain things that maybe they're highly um they can excel at so thank you for clarifying that my son is going to kindergarten this year um what are some tips for parents when choosing 
the good school for their child. I was getting overwhelmed with this. I hear all the parents. I'm in South Florida. Like I said, we have the public schools. We have the charter schools, like all these things. I was like, I just had one option. Um, And it's great that we have, but it can get overwhelming. So what are some tips to share for parents to look for a good school as I, I do it in CAPS? So first I'll say my youngest is starting kindergarten in September too. So I'm right with you. And I live in New York City where we also have a lot of options, which is wonderful in some ways and comes with a lot of work, a lot of legwork for moms in in another way, right? Um, So here's what I often tell people. When you tour a school, you want to be an educated consumer on that school tour, right? And so how do you do that? I look for what I think of as the nonverbal storytelling, right? Sure, what they're telling me is great, I'm listening, but what I'm seeing is often way more valuable than what they're saying because your tour guide can tell you a lot of things, but you can see whether they're actually being put into practice or how, right? And so here's an example. Um, In New York City, I always joke like real estate is king, right? So if your tour guide is telling you like, we really prioritize chess in our school, let's say, right? Well, is there a dedicated chess classroom? Because if there's a room dedicated to something in a city where real estate is so valuable, I know they really mean it when they say they prioritize that thing. So that's an example of like the nonverbal or the visual storytelling I'm looking for. I'm looking for those signs of public shaming we talked about, behavior charts, charts about the old version of whole body listening, which is that stuff we were talking about, focus and eyes on me and all that. Um, I'm looking for differentiation, right? Am I seeing small groups? Does it seem flexible? Um, And then I'm also looking for what they put up on the walls because it's just as easy to put math on the walls as it is to put writing or art, yeah? So if a school tells me like our math program is like so robust and this is where we really focus, I want to see math work up on the walls. If I'm not, I go, well, wait a minute, there's a disconnect here. Um, So those are some of the things that I tell families to look for you know, when you're touring the schools to start to get a sense of, is this school going to be the right fit for my child and my family? I love that because, yeah, we're torn between two. Um, so now when we have the tours in the classrooms, I can look for that. Thank you. Um, homework. I want to talk about homework a little bit. Um, how can we, I think our, even our, even when my son gets homework, I hear parents now with their kids, their school-age kids are like, oh, it's so different than how we learned and I can't. What are maybe some additional tips that to make parents less stressful? And less worrisome to do homework. <laughs> so homework is one of the number one stressors in our homes right now. I hear this every day, every week from families that reach out to me. Why is this causing so much stress in my family? No mom ever pictured being homework enforcer when we pictured being moms. And for a lot of us who work outside the home or have kids who are in long day school and then extra careers, whatever, we have this little window in the evenings, right? An hour, maybe two hours with our kids. The last thing we want to be doing is engaging in this kind of stress and antagonism with them in the small window we have to really make meaningful connection, right? So I feel that so hard. And the reality is that we have no conclusive evidence from the research that there's any benefit to homework other than reading. Reading is always beneficial. Before about fourth grade, right? So if your child is in preschool through third grade-ish, right? It's a little, that line is a little fuzzy depending on the kid, but like I have three-year-olds in my practice who are getting mandatory homework from pre-K three. And I'm going like, what is happening here, right? So um, if your child is in one of those lower grades and you're getting that sort of um, skill and drill type worksheets, like do 10 math problems or answer 20 grammar questions, it's not differentiated for your child's learning needs in particular, like the whole class got this worksheet, you have to really question whether it's worth doing it. 
if it's creating that level of stress in your home, right? And this can be another point of advocacy for your family with your school. Um, Now, let's say that the work is differentiated for your child. You know, it's an area where they need to grow. Um, It's not causing a ton of stress, you know, and it's something that you think, or they want to do it, right? Anything like that, then great, then do it. I'm not saying don't do it, right? I'm saying, ask yourself, does this align with what feels right for me, for my child? And this goes back to trusting mom instincts, right? Like, you know, and I've fallen prey to it also, right? Like I can think of a time earlier this school year, even with my third grader, where it was like after bedtime and it's like 9.30 and he's crying and he's like struggling to get these sentences out and I fell for it, right? Even as educated and informed in this field as I am, I fell for it and I sat there with him and I was like, let's just get this done, blah, blah, blah. And the next day I looked at my husband and I went, what am I doing? I know better, right? Like, no, sleep is more important. He does not stay up past his bedtime. His mental health is more important. If he's in tears over this assignment, he is eight years old. He does not need to do it, right? Now, that may sound really funny coming from somebody who makes a living off of helping kids do homework, but in a sense, like you should trust me even more that I'm saying that, right? Because, because of that. A hundred percent, but it makes sense. I mean, yeah, we can get into the whole mental health aspect. I think the Surgeon General warning, um, Surgeon General came out talking about the warnings with mental health and children and how we're in an epidemic with that. That's a whole nother conversation. But let's pivot a little bit to my mamas that are listening with high school students. Um, can you mm-hmm. share some tips to help kids thrive in the high school to college transition? What have you seen there? And, and do you work, what are the levels, I guess, of children that you work with? Yeah. So in our practice, our youngest learners are in preschool and our oldest learners are in college. So we cover that whole range. Um, And uh, a big part of what I do on the educational consulting side is helping kids successfully transition from high school to college, particularly if they have forms of neurodivergence, right? Because High school is a very um, safe, scaffolded environment where a lot of people are paying attention to you and people love you. And like, if your alarm clock goes off and you don't go out of bed, like probably somebody is there to like nudge you out of bed, right? And again, not for all families, you know, I don't want to make assumptions, but in a lot of the cases, um, if you have an IEP or a 504, which are the plans you get in school that show that you need additional accommodations or supports, um, you know, that is implemented by the school. There's a learning specialist or a guidance counselor, right? Somebody who helps you do that. When you get to college, none of that is the case, right? Like nobody gets you up out of bed. Nobody cares that you had an IEP in high school unless you seek out the student services office to get the accommodations you need, you know, all these sort of pieces. Um, You know, in high school, if you don't show up to class enough days in a row, somebody notices and does something about it, right? In college, if you don't show up, you know, that's on you. Yeah, it's a big, big transition. Yeah. So I do a lot of support for students and for families around that. Like, how are we going to get you set up for success? And, you know, right when you hit the ground at college. And and one of the things I like to say is, you know, when I'm looking at like a room full of parents and teenagers, right, as I go, how many of you had a meeting in high school about getting into college? Raise your hand. Everybody raises their hand, right? And then I say, how many of you had a meeting in high school about what to do when you got to college? No hands, mm-hmm. right? And that's a problem. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. Um, Tell me some misconceptions of tutoring before I go into like maybe how people can find you and kind of all that. But what are some misconceptions of tutoring that you want to share of that people think like, oh, there's a label, right? All these labels. I think there's a a bad connotation when we hear of tutoring that there may be something wrong with my child. They're behind on something. So why don't you share um, the misconceptions? 
So I think the great news is, is that we're really moving away from that. I think that was really true, certainly 20 years ago and maybe even 10 years ago when I first got into this business, um, where people had this sort of stereotypical picture in their head that like tutoring was for kids who were struggling and needed extra help. And a tutor was like a retired school teacher who would come in with like worksheets and drills, right? Um, Now, parents (laughs) see tutoring as part of a child's whole education plan or education picture, right? So School is important, yes, and that is part of it, or your homeschooling plan if you're homeschooling, but that's only one piece, right? And so we look at tutoring as part of it. We look at any extracurriculars, art, sports, anything like that. We can look at other service providers like OT, PT, speech, anything, and it becomes this whole education plan for a child. And I have found that that is really a shift over the last decade in the way parents think about tutoring. Um, nowadays, most of the families that come to me for tutoring, it's because the kids are asking for it mm-hmm. because they know their friends have it. They hear about it on the playground. Sure. They think, oh, that would be really cool. Let me try that, you know? So, um, which obviously makes our lives much, our jobs and our lives much easier if the kids are the ones who are asking for it. A hundred percent. Where can, share maybe your website, social media, obviously I put it in the show notes, but share how people can connect with you um, and maybe the different services, how you work. Do you work with schools? Is it families? Is it one-on-one coaching? Talk a little bit about that before we wrap up here. Sure. So on the private tutoring side, um, they can anybody can find information on our website, which is joyfullylearning.com. Um, we cover, like I said, pre-K through college, all levels of math, science, humanities. We help uh, emergent readers who are first learning to read. Um, we do some standardized test prep. It's not where my heart is, but sometimes the kids need to conquer those hurdles to accomplish some greater educational sure. goal. Um, and this ex- executive functioning coaching we were talking about, um, you know, developing those skills that are really going to help you succeed in planning and executing on a goal, right? Sure. Um, and then on the educational consulting side, that's where I'm working directly with parents myself or um, going into schools and doing professional development for faculty um, or speaking to parent groups. So um, you can find my contact information if you're interested in that on the same website, sure. joyfullylearning.com, but you can also follow me on Instagram at Caitlin Greermeister and you'll get a lot more of my um, you know, practical tips and strategies that you can be learning this morning and putting into you know, play by homework time tonight. I love it. And it's virtual. You do virtual. It's not just in person or is it only in person, I guess? So we work, we work in person in New York city and we work virtually internationally. Perfect. Um, before I say final tips, what, before I ask for you to share like any final thoughts, what do you do for yourself? What do you do to release? What do you do to reset, recharge? I can tell you're passionate about this and I love it. I, I forgot how we connected. I think it was entrepreneurista. Um, I think so. And I just loved even just from your website of kind of how you explained education. And I can tell it was something that you were passionate about, even from seeing there. Um, But what do you do for yourself? What do you do to release, reset, recharge? I do love what I do. I am so incredibly fulfilled by what I do. And, you know, when parents tell you that they're changing, when parents tell you that you're changing their lives, there's nothing that feels like that. And I... I say all of that, but I also understand the heart of your question, which is I am a human being and I am a person and being a mom and a business owner is a lot. (laughs) And I would say that um, as we started the conversation, I love reading. If I'm not reading fiction every day, I'm I'm not feeling well. Um, And I have some hobbies that I still do that I love. I uh, make my kids these incredible elaborate birthday cakes every birthday. Mm. I love baking. I love gardening. I mean, to see, like I, I posted on Instagram uh, last summer, I was like, I grew two human beings, which is like a huge accomplishment, but like, I also grew these flowers and that makes me feel really good. Um, 
And I'm also honestly like, moms, please hear me on this. I am not afraid to say to my children and to my husband, I need a break, right? Yes. This is not working for me and I yes. need to tap out and and regulate myself and recharge. Um, and thankfully, uh, you know, I've modeled that for my kids so they understand how to do that when they're feeling dysregulated or that they are not up to a particular challenge in that moment to be able to say, you know what? I need to take a pause and come back and try again when I feel ready. I right? love that. I call it for myself at home. I've talked to a lot of guests. It's like episode 141. So thankfully I'm learning. I, I get like firsthand knowledge. Goodness gracious. It's amazing. Um, I call it tap in and tap out. And I'll tell my son, like if I have a boundary, if I have something, I'm like, I can't be with you at this moment. Mommy has this, this, this. And to over. I guess not compensate for the mom guilt or to say, this is what it is. I know the next morning, maybe I'll make him pancakes or I give him that undivided attention the next day or even with my husband. Um, but when I need the break, whether it's that for myself or just something I have to do for work of making sure it's like, this is what it has to be. However, I do try and follow it up so that he still kind of feels the importance. Like, but I'm going to see you this or I'll do this. And I think for the most part, kids are pretty easy. We just have to show them of some priority level, at least for my son, right? That has kind of what worked, but I love that you shared that. Um, what are some final thoughts about maybe education or anything that you'd like to share with the podcast community before we part here? Moms, trust your instincts. You know your child best. If something doesn't feel right to you, or conversely, there's something that you know is going to cause your child to light up or thrive, advocate for that speak up. You know, we are often women who are high powered in our careers, confident sure. in our homes. And we go into parent teacher conferences, like we are the six-year-old, right? Yes. So, so please hear it from me first. I work in this space and I am a mom. Trust your instincts. Um, number one. And number two, if you have advocacy to do in a school, be on a team with your child's teacher. Go in there as though you and the teacher are on the same team to meet this challenge, whatever that challenge is, right? You are going to have so much more success that way if you, than if you go in like you and the teacher are on opposite sides of something, right? Use your resources to solve the challenge, not fight the teacher. I love that. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for coming on, for sharing so much tips and strategies and all the things. Um, continue blessings to you for love and light. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this impactful episode of the Motherhood Village podcast. Subscribe to my show so you'll never miss a future episode. You may also rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone that can use it as part of their Motherhood Village. Remember, your village can take up many forms and you do not have to do it alone. Connect with me at themotherhoodvillage.com. Blessings to you for love and light.